As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. This is going to be a time travel episode. Yeah, this is the time shift edition. We're going to Cancun. We're flying out tomorrow morning. And uh, this is the, what is the date today? The 8th of January. We're recording in advance because we're going to be in Cancun. But we're only going to record the first part of this. We're going to finish it up when we come home. Yeah, because I haven't packed yet. And so we <laughs> we got to get going. Yeah. So we're going to do the beginning part uh, now, and then we'll do the end part when we get back. Right. And it, so it's going to be like a time, it's going to be like a time travel thing. Yeah, it'll be like fast forwarding a week in our life. <laughs> you get to experience this with us. Yeah, we don't know what to expect. Nope. Other than um, jet skis and gunmen. Stop it. But um, we when we come back, well, actually, the end of this episode, we'll tell you uh, what happened, providing we survive. Oh, my gosh. That's terrible to say. Would you keep doing the podcast without me? Uh, there's no way this podcast would work without you. I don't know. According to the reviews, it would work better without me. <laughs> You're talking about a handful of, like, drunk guys <laughs> who... You don't know. No, I'm pretty sure they're drunk guys. <laughs> They're just um, jealous of you. Oh, you're so sweet. And if you want to offset those negative reviews, by the way, head on over to uh, Apple Podcasts <laughs> and give us a five-star review. Seriously, there's been like five. Yeah, so, well, you know. It's true, but I don't like them. <laughs> you're, you're ridiculous. Anyway, here we go. Here's my story. I just don't like dragging you down. For decades now, people in Europe have been finding a strange anomaly washing up on their beaches. From the United Kingdom to Germany to France, Spain, Netherlands, even Sweden. Is it feet? It's not feet, but that's what kind of drew me to the story. It reminded me of the shoes with the feet in them washing ashore. This appears to be some sort of a tablet with a strange word that's carved or engraved into it. It's like Toynbee tiles. It's like Toynbee tiles. That's <laughs> the other thing I thought of, too. The word is spelled T-J-I-P-E-T-I-R. T I'm sorry, T-J-I-P-E-T-I-R. And they pronounce it as Chipetir. 
They look like a large chopping or cutting board uh, that has this strange word engraved in it. And it floats? It floats. It looks like a stone tablet, but when you pick it up, it's hard and rubbery. No one knows when they started showing up. They just started washing ashore randomly, and hundreds of them have been found over the years. Generations went by, and no one was able to solve the mystery of these cheapeteer blocks or tablets. I have a question. Is it too early for questions? No. Question away. Okay. Does cheapeteer mean something outside of the blocks, or is that a word that is on the blocks, so that's why it's a word. No, it's a word besides being on the blocks. What's but it mean? No, well, nobody knew at first. We'll get to that. Okay. Generations went by. No one was able to solve this, uh, this mystery. What, what's the deal with these things? And then, in the summer of 2012, a woman named Tracy Williams was walking along the beach with her dog in Cornwall. Oh, that sounds nice. She saw something black sticking out of the sand. On further inspection, it was a black tablet with the word, well, she didn't know how to pronounce it, but it's cheapeteer. And she had not heard of this strange phenomena. 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 So she just kind of shrugged it off. Now, I wouldn't have done that. I would have taken it home. Immediately. Yeah. So a few weeks go by. She's walking along a different beach. And she discovered another tablet, exactly the same. So now she's all in. Is she a tablet siren? (laughs) Maybe. She started asking friends and family if they knew about and had heard any stories about these strange tablets with this bizarre word engraved in them. And that's when she found out that she had stumbled onto an experience that people in Europe have been having for nearly 100 years. Wow. No one could tell Tracy anything more than that these strange engraved tablets had been washing up on beaches for decades. So she decided to do some research. Tracy sounds like my kind of gal. (laughs) The first thing she did was started a Facebook group about her find. And that led to many people coming forward to reveal that they also had found these mysterious tablets. People from the Shetland, the Channel Islands. Spain, France, the Netherlands, Germany, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. Wow. Kind of all over. So she started digging deeper. And she started with the word T-J-I-P-E-T-I-R and discovered that there is a village in West Java, Indonesia with that name. And that's how we now know it's pronounced Chipatir. She discovered that during the 19th century there, there was a Gutta plantation located there. What is gutta percha? Gutta percha is a tree. Um, The name is also used to describe the, quote, rigid, naturally, biologically inert, resilient, electrically non-conductive thermal plastic latex that's derived from the tree. Basically, it's like a rubber tree. It's like a it's like a rubber tree. Yes. And it's it produces this dark colored rubbery substance that was used in the manufacture of many items like um, surgical devices, golf balls, toys. It was also vital in the development and deployment of the underwater telegraph cables in the early part of the century. It was an important, highly sought-after substance in the late 19th century and into the early 20th century. It appears as though this plantation in Chipotere was manufacturing blocks or tablets of gutta percha, Uh, stamping the name of its location of origin on it and shipping it worldwide. 
Now, this was long before modern plastics were used, and you could kind of think of it as a Victorian plastic. It was kind of like the forerunner to what they pretty much used it for what we use plastic for today. Mm-hmm. 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 Different kind of toy you're thinking about. Not now. So why have these tablets been washing ashore throughout the, this entire region for nearly a hundred years now. Was there a cheapetier shipwreck? The obvious answer is just that. Um, a lot of ships, though, carried it during this time, so Tracy began searching ship manifests and cargo records. It had to be a ship from the early 1900s. Oh, I love that it wasn't enough that she found out what the thing was and why it might be out and about. But she wanted to know, like, what ship did this come yeah. from? Yeah. All right, she Tracy. She was serious about it. Well done, Tracy. Now, a French newspaper picked up the story, and they were following along and did some research on their own. They reported that the Titanic had been carrying gutta percha. Oh. And Tracy went ahead and uh, researched the ship's manifest and discovered that it had indeed been carrying not only gutta percha, but also bales of rubber. And she had learned from some of the people that found her through the Facebook page that they had found tablets and also some bales of rubber that had washed up on shore with tablets. This is an exciting breakthrough, she's thinking. It, it fits the right time frame because they're thinking it had to be in the early 1900s and the Titanic sank in 1912. But was it the Titanic? You're referring, of course, to the first Titanic and not the Titanic cruise ship that we're going to be going on. <laughs> not the new one, no. It definitely could have been from the Titanic but it definitely could have been from a number of other ships from that time period that was carrying similar cargo that, that shared a similar fate. So a year rolls by, and the summer of 2013, Tracy Williams gets what uh, she considered a major breakthrough. She, had, she was contacted separately by two different people, and they both wanted to remain anonymous, but they both suggested one wreck was the potential source. Ooh. Now here's the story. They knew of a salvage company that had been involved in a recovery expedition of a Japanese cargo liner. The cargo liner had sunk during World War I, and it sunk about 150 miles offshore and was carrying cheapetier blocks. The ship was named Miyazaki Maru, and it was built in Kobe, Japan in 1909. It was sunk on May 31, 1917 during a voyage from Yokohama to London. It was sunk by a German submarine, U-88. Oh, not just a regular old iceberg, huh? No, no. It was carrying not only cargo, but people, and eight people were killed. Oh. So Tracy was told by two independent sources that when the salvage work was done and the cargo that they were looking for was pulled out, the gutta percha and rubber bales were released from the ship's hold as a result. She said in an article on BBC, quote, So both of my sources told me that the shipwreck is where those items are mainly coming from. I've been shown evidence that supports this. And she's not the only one. There are others in uh, positions of authority that also uh, support this theory. The officials who administer wreck and salvation laws within the UK territorial waters also believe it is most likely that the blocks are indeed from this particular cargo ship. Wow. Alison Kentuck, an official spokesperson for the agency, said, quote, when we are made aware of a wreckage, we conduct research to find the owner. 
We look at the age of the items, where they could have come from, and examine any markings. Our findings with these particular items pointed toward that particular wreck. So, although we have not confirmed it as this wreck, mm -hmm. it is our favored possibility for the source of the washed up blocks. So that explains the recent rash of findings uh, of these tablets since 2008. That's when that salvage mission was undertaken. But what about the ones that came decades prior to the cargo salvage expedition? It's very likely that these come from any of those other wrecks from the time period, including the Titanic, mm. that were carrying cheapeteer blocks. So how long will these blocks continue to wash ashore? Just based on the records of ships that have sunk that carried this material, mm -hmm. an oceanographer named Curtis Ebsmeyer, who is a specialist in tracking flotsam, he's a flotsam tracker, I love it. said these particular blocks, because they deteriorate relatively slowly, may be washing up on beaches for centuries to come. Wow, that's why we need tiny self-aware robots. <laughs> that eat plastics and, and rubber and cheapeteer. Um, he said, quote, based on the findings so far, they are clearly being fed into the hemispheric ocean circulation. It only takes about 25 years for flotsam to go around the globe. Wow. And they've been out there long enough to go around the globe about three times. They're still in good condition after all these years, which is unusual. They're probably one of the greatest pieces of flotsam that people will probably be finding hundreds of years from now. That's amazing. I had no idea that it only took 25 years for something to tootle its way around the Earth. Yeah, once it's in the hemispheric ocean circulation. It's amazing. It is. And it seems much more likely that that kind of item would make its way around the hemispheric circulation circulation in that time period than it would joanne romaine's body making it from all the way from gross point <laughs> to that island outside of detroit yeah. i don't believe it we just watched uh, a recent unsolved mysteries and now i'm obsessed yeah sorry but anyway please continue my source material is the bbc the wikipedia's uh, ancient Origins, and USA Today. That was really interesting. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, love. And now, that thing in the middle. Fyodor Vasilyev was a peasant from Shuya, Russia, and lived between 1707 and 1782. His first wife lived to be 76 years of age, and between 1725 and 1765, they had 69 children. 16 pairs of twins, seven sets of triplets, and four sets of quadruplets. After his first wife passed away, he married again and had 18 more children. Six pairs of twins, two sets of triplets, which would make him the father of 87 children in total. If you played this podcast backward and at twice the speed, it would sound like crap. This is the Box of Oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me 
updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. 
Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Support for the Box of Oddities is provided in part by listeners like you on Patreon. You can support us too. Go to patreon.com slash box of oddities. Thank you. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. So Philly Fred sent us an email, curator at theboxofoddities.com. Um, he said, I always wanted to know, why do UFOs have lights? This mm. is a, an excellent quandary. What the fuck? A UFO travels light years to get here. Why would they need lights? Right. It's an excellent point because light, would you wouldn't be able to see it if you were traveling at the speed of light. Right. Quote, alien to UFO builder. Hey, dude, don't forget to put the lights on the saucer. Maybe they're afraid of getting ticketed once they get here. That Maybe that's it. Could be it. Yeah. It's like, you know, when you haul when you have a U-Haul, you have to have those special trailer lights on them. Right. Honestly, I've asked this question of many UFO shows and they never have an answer. Maybe you could make this a contest by throwing the question out to your listeners. I love it. Thanks for your very entertaining podcast philly fred maybe it's not lights in the way that we understand lights maybe it's just some sort of reflective material that we perceive as lights Mm. but really it's just uh reflected from our lights or perhaps the saucer itself has made perforations in the time space fabric from traveling the speed of light yeah <clears throat> and it just pokes holes into another dimensional universe. And we're just seeing light through the hole. What we perceive as lights on the UFO are just holes in the fabric of time. No, that doesn't make sense. You don't know. You're not a time fabric light guy. You look nice today. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. All right, your turn. What you got? All right. Mine is also a mystery, but not as fun. When Jules Forstein returned home from a political banquet on the evening of October 18, 1949, he was surprised to discover his wife was not there to greet him. He became concerned when he found two of his children, Edward and Marcy, clinging to each other in a bedroom, both crying, Mommy's gone. Oh, no. Dorothy Cooper Forstein was a well-liked, well-off wife and mother living in a nice North Philadelphia neighborhood. She'd been married to her husband, Jules Forstein, since 1942. I really appreciate you leaning away from the microphone as you drink your beer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a broadcast professional. I can tell. Excuse me. I am not. Together, they were raising... Their three children, two from Jules's first marriage, and then they had one together. Jules Forstein was Dorothy's childhood sweetheart. He was made a magistrate in 1943, and the couple moved into a three-story brick home at 1835 North Franklin Street in Philadelphia. According to everyone, their marriage was a happy one. So where is she? Well, that day, Jules had called his wife and let her know that he would be attending the political banquet. He'd be leaving straight from work and phoned Dorothy to inform her that he didn't expect to be home too late. So she replied, be sure to miss me, which I think is cute. And I'm going to start saying that's adorable. Yeah, I'm going to switch it up. So I'm going to say, be sure to miss me instead of do you hate me now? That's a nice change. Do you not want to be married to me anymore? (laughs) Are you mad at me? I don't know why she does that. 
When he returned home around 11.30 and found his two youngest children alone, the eldest child, 19-year-old Myrna, was out visiting friends. Jules initially thought maybe his wife had gone to a neighbor's house, but after hours of checking and making phone calls, he called the police. Dorothy had left her keys, purse, and money at home. The front door had been locked. From the inside? Unclear. Okay. But it's assumed that it was, that that was the case. No. Okay. We don't know. It's just unknown. Okay. It's one of those locks that could be locked from the inside (laughs) or the outside. Who knows? But when police investigated further and interviewed Marcy, through tears, she told them, I woke up and it was late. I don't know whether I heard voices or whether I just woke up. I went to the head of the stairs and there was a man coming up. He went to mommy's room in the front, and through a crack in the door, I could see her lying on her face on the rug. She looked sick. The man turned her over on her back and then picked her up. He put her over his shoulder so her head hung down his back. When I asked what he was doing, he said, go back to sleep, little one. Oh, no. Your mommy has been sick. She'll be all right now. Wow, this is like an extremely evil Grinch. It's awful. No, you're exactly correct. Marcy said that the man was wearing a brown cap with a peak and a brown jacket with something stuck in his shirt. She said that her mother had on red slippers and her red silk pajamas, the ones she liked so much because they were pretty. She didn't say anything. Wow, that's heartbreaking. It's terrible. Marcy said she'd never seen the man before, but he was probably, quote, about the same age as daddy. Which, when I was young, anyone between the age of 20 and 70 <laughs> was the same age as my daddy. Uh-huh. I bet daddy really appreciated her All you that. old people look the same. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm 40. Now, anyway, there were no disturbances in the home. There was no sign of forced entry. There was no physical evidence that anyone else had been on the property. No fingerprints. Nothing. Police checked hospitals, morgues, all the hotels all over Philadelphia. They went door to door in the neighborhood. No one had seen anything unusual. Wow. So with the exception of the little girl witnessing this, Mm -hmm. this woman just vanished. Yeah. So police were skeptical. But Marcy stuck to her account. And psychiatrists who examined her were convinced she was telling the truth. Plus... There was that first attack. Oh? On the evening of January 25, 1945, Dorothy left her three children with a neighbor and went shopping while Jules was working. Along the way, she stopped to talk with some friends and the neighborhood butcher. She went home to drop off her purchases before going to pick up her kids. A man jumped out from the front of the house and began beating her. The struggle knocked the telephone from its hook just inside the door, alerting the operator. So when the telephone operator heard the noises of what she could tell was a fight, they contacted the police, which is great job. Great job, operator. And when police arrived to the home, they found Dorothy unconscious, nearly beaten to death with a broken jaw, broken nose, broken shoulder. I didn't even know that's possible. And a concussion. Nothing was stolen from the house. So it was obviously not an attempted burglary. 
And it was, it sounds like it was extremely personal. It was personal because it was so violent and there was no sexual assault. There were no threats or demands made. She was just beaten nearly to death. She was taken to a hospital and only managed to utter one sentence while in transit. Someone jumped out at me. I couldn't see who it was. He just hit me and hit me. He just hit Mm. me and hit me. Philadelphia Police Captain James A. Kelly viewed the attack as an attempted murder. So, of course, police conducted an investigation of Jules Forstein, but found that his work alibi as completely solid. As a magistrate, there had been a lot of people around who could account for his whereabouts. The most prevalent theory for police at that time was that the attacker might have been someone who had appeared in court before Forstein at some point and didn't get a favorable uh. judgment. So Dorothy was attacked as revenge. But Jules couldn't think of anyone who would have held enough of a professional grudge against him to attack his wife. So the case went cold. I hate it when the case goes cold. After the attack, Dorothy became paranoid, extremely cautious. I mean, rightfully so. She was convinced that she would suffer another attack, and she wasn't wrong. It was four years later that Jules returned home to find his wife missing. So were the two events connected? They had to be. Either by motive or by the person responsible? Did someone feel wronged by the family and take it out on Dorothy? There was one theory speculated. There was a 29-year-old textile salesman named Morris Unmuth. He'd been charged with inciting a riot, resisting arrest, and disorderly conduct. He was fined $10, but he countered it by filing assault battery charges against the two officers. He claimed that they only saw him, quote-unquote, acting suspiciously, and then they beat him for 20 minutes during his arrest. McCarthy and Ralston, the officers, were originally held on $1,000 bail each by a magistrate, but charges against the officers were later dropped by Jules Forstein. Okay. All right. So there is a motive there. Yeah. It's been theorized that that man, Morris Anmuth, attacked Dorothy in 1945, retaliating against Forestine for his lenience with the officers, and that he was again the man who abducted Dorothy four years later. Yeah, so when you said that, my first thought was, the if it's the same person, the the perp, if you will. The perp, the the unsub. Maybe he was arrested for something else and served four years And then when he got out, went back to try to finish or did finish the job. Oh, that's an interesting theory. Am I right? Yeah, who knows? Okay, we don't know. Because this this idea featuring Morris Unmuth was just a theory. And again, the case went cold. In 1957, Dorothy was officially declared dead. So eight years. That's fast math. Um... (laughs) Listen, she was officially declared dead as of October 18, 1956, which would have been seven years after she vanished. So, yeah, that um, was eight years before. 
And just months after Jules Forstein died of heart disease. So he died without there being any sort of resolution. But um, one of her children had petitioned for her to be declared dead. I am Mm. assuming it just helped with closure and so on. Captain David Roberts of the Philadelphia Homicide Squad concurred that all efforts of police and private investigation had failed to discover a trace of Dorothy Forstein. Never found her. Never found her. Never solved the case. But that doesn't mean that people aren't still looking. There's a Facebook group dedicated to the Forstein case created by Gary Sweeney. And I guess it's pretty active. So, um, again, it's amazing what people all together can do. And I would love to see this as one of those after many years, it was solved cases. Yeah, that's what social media is for. I'd much rather see it used for that than pictures of your lunch. Well, I mean, I love pictures of your lunch. Don't get me wrong. But like um, The Keepers was a great Mm, documentary based on, again, a lot of hometown sleuthing, a lot of internet chicks getting to it. And I... I love that, and I, I'm just hoping that this case eventually can be solved. I have a feeling it will be. Great story, sweetie. I enjoyed that. Thank you. I wonder if we had a good time on vacation. I hope so. Let's, let's ask us. Let's check in with future Jethro and Cat. Thanks, Cat and Jethro, from the distant past. Yep. We just got back from Cancun, and it was it was indeed a wonderful trip. We yes. Thoroughly enjoyed it. There were no gunmen on jet skis that we saw. No, but every time we heard a jet ski, we were like, the fuck? It's true. We did have an amazing experience, though. This is a box of oddities effect for you. A couple of episodes ago, I talked about, uh, what was it, La Dama del Silencio, um, the wrestling woman who uh, killed old ladies. Yep. The old lady killer. At the resort we were at, we met a guy who actually met her. Yeah, and so we're gonna tell you about that uh, in the next episode because I'm I need to I need to sleep and eat regular food and sleep mostly all of those things. But uh, we we're definitely gonna tell you about it. Uh, we just don't uh, just not right now. Yeah, in fact, we recorded a brief interview with him. He'll tell the story to you on the next episode of the Box of Oddities, and we'll see you then. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, we wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? 
On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.